This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen. Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was first published in 1937. Amazon describes it as the grandfather of all people skills books. It was an overnight hit, eventually selling 15 million copies. Carnegie says, you learn how to make people like you, win people over to your way of thinking, and change people without causing offense or arousing resentment. In part one, entitled Fundamental Techniques in Handling People, he says, don't criticize, condemn, or complain. And Carnegie illustrates his points with anecdotes of historical figures, leaders of the business world, and everyday folks. One person who, oddly, doesn't get a mention is John the Baptist. <laughs> this morning, we encounter John in the desert with crowds of people coming to be baptized. And what does he do? What does he say? He says, you brood of vipers. You think you're so privileged uh, because of the families you come from? Well, most of you are about to be chopped down and burnt in the fire. John the Baptist is probably one of the greatest preachers of all time, but he did not pull any punches. You know, preaching is somewhat of a risky business. Now, there are certain advantages of being in a pulpit like ours. I mean, you can all see me, and I can see you. You can hear better. At least that's, I think, why they were high up before we had microphones. Um, and preaching from up here, I can feel somewhat, you know, secure and safe. There's a big piece of wood here. And I mean, not that anybody's actually thrown anything at me um, ever. And that's not an invitation to start. Um, I've got a nice place for my notes. So what's the problem? Where's the risk? Well, the problem is that up here, there is a huge pressure and an even bigger temptation. The pressure is to perform well. I mean, I want you to listen. I want you to go out feeling that it was worthwhile. And there's the pressure to be somehow original or funny or engaging or whatever it is I may think you need. The temptation arises from that pressure. The temptation for any preacher is to say what he or she thinks that you want to hear. And then you feel good, the preacher feels good, and we all go home happy. Except that's not my job. It's not my job to make you feel happy. And it's not your job to make me feel good. My job Actually, it's all of our jobs, but the preacher in particular. The job is to listen to God in prayer, through reading and preparation, and then to say that which I believe God wants me to say on this day. Whether you might like it or not. And I say this fully aware that I might not always hear God rightly or clearly. 
Your job then is all the more so to listen carefully and attentively with all your critical uh, faculties brought to bear and with your hearts open to God, ready for action and obedience to the Lord, and if necessary, to challenge me afterwards. You're very good at that, by the way. I just, just want you to know that. Just, uh... Well, with all of that in mind, what then is the message this morning? Well, it's this. Receive the good news that comes to us from the voice in the wilderness. Hear again for most of us the words of John the Baptist and heed the warning. The call is to repent. And that call to repent is both a challenge and a promise. And it's a promise filled with hope. John describes the alternative to repentance in stark terms. He's pointing to the one who's to come after him, to Jesus, whom John says in verse 17 will come winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then in verse 18, so with many other exhortation, exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. And when you put it like that, it doesn't sound like very cheery news. It doesn't sound full of promises of hope. I can't imagine what his many other exhortations must have sounded like. The ones we have are strong enough from an axe ready to chop down fruitless trees to a messiah with a winnowing fork and chaff that gets burned in an unquenchable fire. How can this possibly be good news? Where is the hope? Clearly, this is not good news in the sense that it will make everybody happy. And yet it is good news in the sense that justice and judgment are coming. God is not deaf to the cries of the persecuted and the suffering. It is also clear that there's no such thing as cheap grace. There's no easy button to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. And of course, that's true in most of life. There's no easy button. History makes that plain. At the start of the Second World War, Winston Churchill famously said to the British House of Commons, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I say it is to wage war by land, sea, and air. War with all our might and with all the strength God has given us, and to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. What is our aim? Victory. Well, on this third Sunday of Advent, when we light the pink candle as a symbol of joy, I think it is fair to say that we too are engaged in a war. That kind of talk understandably makes some of you rather nervous. What place does rhetoric like that have in church and in this church? Don't we have enough fighting talk 
in our highly polarized, highly charged cultural landscape in which we live. Surely the last thing we need to hear from the pulpit today is militaristic language. Certainly, the preacher should be careful. The language of war and fighting can so easily lead to the sort of hateful and judgmental talk that sadly, and I have to say often rightly, gives Christians a bad name. What then is the war that I'm speaking of? In Ephesians 6, St. Paul puts it this way. Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And St. Peter puts it a different way. He says, keep alert, like a, uh, keep alert like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls looking for someone to devour. In Advent, we are challenged to get ready for Jesus, to get ready for his coming again, to prepare the way. The timing for this is the in-between time between Christ's first coming and his coming again. This is the time in which we live. The context is one of hostility between the forces of evil in this world, this present darkness, and the salvation of our God. Our preparing the way, our being ready, our taking our stand begins and frankly must continue with repentance and with bearing fruit worthy of that repentance. This is the message of John the Baptist. And this morning we're challenged to listen again to the words of John the Baptizer. John, the last and great prophet from God before Jesus. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, says the prophet. Do we? Do our lives bear such fruit? And what does that mean? I think whatever else it means, it means this. It means acknowledging our sins before God. And perhaps not only before God, perhaps sometimes also before a trusted Christian brother or sister or to a priest. True repentance, however, is not only naming our sins. It's about change. It means to turn around. And the crowds listening to John the Baptist, they kind of get it. And they say, what then should we do? And Jesus answers in a whole range of very practical ways. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Well, what are we to do, asked the tax collectors. Stop ripping people off and be honest. Well, what should we do, say the soldiers? Stop abusing your power. Don't extort money from anyone with threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. Dare we ask God what he wants us to do? that we may bear fruit worthy of repentance? If you are being unfaithful in some way and you ask God what he wants you to do, I hope you know what he will say. He won't condemn you, 
But he will say, stop it. Repent. Go and sin no more. What am I to do is one of the questions that needs to be on our lips and in our hearts. And I think it takes some courage to ask that question of God, and it takes some humility. You know where you are tempted, where you are weak, where you constantly sin and fail and falter. The call of John the Baptist and the call of Jesus then and now is the same. Repent, turn around, ask for help, come home. But I can't, it's too hard, you don't understand how easily these and other excuses can come to our minds. John's words are hard to hear. You brood of vipers, he says. To those who were full of themselves, to those who thought they could rely on their upbringing, or in our case, maybe our, our upbringing or our church attendance, or anything other than the mercy and grace of God. John issues this stark warning. And I think these words from John are hard, partly because of to whom he is saying this. Who is it that he's calling a brood of vipers? It's not the occupying Roman armies. It's not um, terrorists or loudmouth politicians. It's the ordinary, even the religiously inclined folks who've come out to see what's going on. And though their context was one of oppressive Roman occupation, John challenges each and every person to look in the mirror and face our own failures and selfishness and self-righteousness. Here was a prophet who, unlike the false prophets, was not preaching all is well when it wasn't. He was not saying peace, peace when there was no peace. And extraordinarily, as they hear this kind of preaching, we're told they were filled with expectation. They wondered whether John might even be the promised Messiah. John tells them, no, he was not the Messiah, but the, but the one who would come after him, he would be the one who would come with justice and righteousness, sorting out the wheat and the chaff. These words are sobering. There is a coming judgment. And these words are also life-giving and are words of life and hope and joy. How so, you ask? Was John really proclaiming good news? Yes, here's why. Repentance, when it is real, is always good news. It is good news when we turn to Jesus. It is good news when we turn away from sin and self and we receive new life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus taught, for theirs is the kingdom of God. As we saw in Psalm 85 today, the Lord speaks peace to his faithful people, to those who turn their hearts to him. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The prophet Zephaniah spoke of the Lord in our midst as a mighty warrior who gives victory and of how he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with singing. 
And here we see the militaristic tone of war and warriors of justice and righteousness juxtaposed with images of joy and peace and mercy and God himself singing over his beloved. I love that picture. Our strong, righteous, mighty, holy, just God singing over his beloved. God is both just and righteous and mighty and he loves us. He loves you. It's an extraordinary thing. This then is why the baptism of repentance that John cries out in the wilderness is such good news. The other side of the coin of repentance is joy. The call to repentance is a call to come home to the place where there is peace and joy and grace. And our home, our true home, is with God, who knows us and loves us, who sent his son to be born, to live, to die, and be resurrected for us, and who is coming again. Jesus tells us elsewhere that there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. John the Baptist spoke of how when Jesus would come, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We need that baptism, that immersion in the Spirit again and again and again. We need the purifying fire of God's cleansing and healing of his love and grace in our lives. This is indeed good news. This is very good news. This is what we are promised. This is what gives us hope. So let us repent and rejoice. As Paul tells us in Philippians, we're to rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. So let us be gentle with one another, even with those who sin against us. As Paul writes, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. What then shall we do as we wait, as we wait for Jesus? Paul says, don't worry. The call of John the Baptist and of Jesus is a call that is designed to produce repentance, genuine self-reflection, and a fresh turning to God. Even in the midst of whatever may come. This Advent, bring your worries, your fears, your stresses to God. And with those things, bring also your thanksgivings. As Paul exhorts us, do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. This is the basis on which we have such profound hope. This is why each Sunday before we're sent out, the priest boldly proclaims God's peace, the peace of God which passes all understanding. And it is that peace that will keep your hearts in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So today, heed the voice of God
calling you to repent. Know the joy of turning to Christ. Receive the promise of God's forgiveness. And by his grace, bear fruit worthy of that repentance. I pray that you will know the joy that our coming Savior promises. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen.